0: Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture Podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley and today we're speaking again with Dr. Daniel Heimbach. Dr. Heimbach is Senior Professor of Christian Ethics and he has served on the faculty here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary for over 27 years. He is a fellow for the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. He's a senior fellow for the Cornwall Alliance Scholars and he has advised the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and founded and for years led the Christian ethics section of the Evangelical Theological Society. Now, Dr. Heimbach covers all areas of his practice, but he specializes in political ethics and public policy dealing with matters such as uh, war and peace, marriage and family, and religious liberty. Besides teaching, he also has extensive experience in public life during the Bush 41 administration and before coming to Southeastern. Dr. Heimbach was Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Deputy Executive Secretary of the White House, Domestic Policy Council, and White House Associate Director for Domestic Policy. Now, if you remember in our last episode, we talked about how Dr. Heimbach is the son of missionaries, and he was born in Communist China and raised in Southeast Asia. He's a Naval Academy graduate who served as a commissioned officer in combat during the Vietnam War. And so Dr. Heimbach today is joining us to discuss just war theory and to share his experience as a Christian and moral influence in the public square, especially in light of the role he played in the Bush 41 policy concerning the first Gulf War. So be sure to check out our previous episode with Dr. Heimbach, where he discussed his family's missionary efforts during the communist insurgency in Southeast Asia. Dr. Heimbach, thank you for being with us again today. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, In 2003, uh, documentary filmmaker Errol Morris released a series of interviews that he did with Robert McNamara. The film was called The Fog of War. 11 Lessons from the Life of Robert S. McNamara, and in fact, it won an Academy Award for Best Documentary in 2004. McNamara is best known for being the Secretary of Defense during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, and he was the chief architect of the American military buildup in Vietnam. As the documentary makes clear, however, McNamara also played a key role in World War II. McNamara helped General Curtis LeMay, and LeMay oversaw the Allied bombing of Japanese targets. Now, LeMay was a hard-nosed warrior who had a very simple approach to war, kill them until they give up. Now, McNamara and LeMay were the ones who decided what Japanese cities would be bombed, how many bombers, what type of bombs. McNamara and LeMay ordered the firebombing of Tokyo, which in one night resulted in 100,000 civilian casualties. They were the ones who decided on Hiroshima as the target for the first nuclear bomb, which of course resulted in 60,000 casualties. So is there such a thing as just war, or is it, as General Sherman said, all war is hell and therefore it is an absolute evil that may be necessary but never justified? So Dr. Heimbach, let's start with some definitions. What is just war theory, and how would you contrast that perhaps with pacifism or uh, a crusade? Sure. Uh, people have written
1: books, taught courses, myself included, uh, on all of this. And uh, so the question is asking to sort of, in a nutshell, give listeners an idea of, uh, of what these terms refer to. And uh, just war, pacifism, and crusade refer to three different paradigms structuring the ethics of war and peace. Uh, Your ethic of war is your ethic of peace. Your ethic of peace is your ethic of war is one ethic. So everybody is for uh, peace. Everybody is uh, against war or doesn't like war or is against evil. Um, But what is defined as good and evil is uh, different in these different ethics. And so... uh, Pacifism is the idea that uh, the use of deadly force, uh, taking life, destroying property, uh, is never ever right, uh, because violence is the definition of evil. So it's uh, it defines violence as evil, and so therefore uh, no evil can be justified, and therefore no 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 use of deadly
0: force can be. Justify that's pacifism. So, so in, in pacifism's thinking, uh, the idea of a just war, the expression is an oxymoron in their thinking,
1: uh, because by their definition. Yeah. So, um, so pacifism is uh, one ethic. War is never justified. It's uh, inherently evil and therefore um, uh, impossible to justify, and never uh, no without exceptions. Uh, crusade is sort of the opposite. Uh, it doesn't like war, but it uses war as the best means to get rid of evil and create a perfect world. So um, it's, uh, it's for the vision of good and, and crusade is to have a perfect world uh, ruled by God or an emissary of God. And uh, with no, uh, no exceptions, nobody nobody disagreeing, nobody opposing. And so if people are converted, that's
0: great. If they don't, kill them. So, so, a, so I noticed that you use the expression uh, perfect world. The desire, the ambition is for a, it, it, for a perfect It envisions both crusade
1: and pacifism are perfectionist ethics or versions of ethical idealism. That is, they start with a vision of perfection and construct a ethic of war and peace in view of that vision. And so the, the perfection that the pacifists start with is no violence. The perfection that the uh, crusade starts with is uh, a world ruled by God or a world ruled by you know, uh, a perfect ruler with no opposition. Uh, but of course we don't live in a perfect world and uh, we're not going to have a perfect world as long as there's sin and sinners in the world. And uh, so any social, any part of social life uh, is going to be imperfect. Uh, Christians are called to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, but that perfection is accredited perfection that we're given uh, through the atonement of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we, uh, and we are, we are measure or called to perfection in our personal life or individual behavior. But in terms of what God expects of society, people living in the world as it is Uh, we are to be witnesses but we are not uh, in the name of God to make the world perfect for him. So Um, God allows sinners to exist and sinners and sin to be possible uh, and will continue to make it you know there will be sin and sinners in the world
0: uh, until Jesus comes back and uh, and gets rid of it all. So um, at each end of the spectrum are utopian ideals. Exactly. Passivism and crusade.
1: And that's important to understand to explain just war. Just war is a mediating um, ethic that is realist. Uh, it understands that we live in an imperfect world. It can't make the world perfect no matter what you do. Uh, but you try to resist uh, bad things as much as you can. And uh, and use sometimes you have to use deadly force. Uh, but you, you prefer not to. So... Basically, the way just just war uh, is structured is that uh, it opposes unnecessary war, but also thinks that at times uh, war is necessary. Uh, And the ethic is framed by two questions. Uh, When is going to war justified? Because the presumption is you don't like war, you don't want to go to war if you don't have to, but sometimes it is, so when is it justified? And second question is, how should a justified war be conducted?
0: So now we're getting to the idea of proportionality,
1: appropriateness. Uh, right. Well, you have two classifications of principles in just war. Uh, you have the uh, ad bellum principles and the in bello principles. Those are Latin terms. Uh, just is just the Latin. It means principles. And uh, it's where we get the word justice or uh, you know, rights. And so just ad bellum means principles before the war. In other words, these are... Uh, Principles that answer the question when is it when is it right to go to war when you're not already at war or you ha- you're not in a war and you're wondering whether it's right to go to war uh, or start a war or join a war um, and so uh, that's that's the ad bellum principles and then once you're in a war in just war you don't just do the worst you can. Uh, you, you know, anything goes. Uh, the use of force even in the process of fighting a justified war uh, is restrained by moral principles.
0: So thinking of of, of uh, just war and pacifism, uh, who have been or have there been, any uh, pacifists who've led out in American politics or culture? It could be like some say, um, the expression American pacifist, is an oxymoron, sort of like the idea of, you know, some say just war is an oxymoron. You know, uh, America is not known for uh, being a hotbed of pacifism. Whoever coined that,
1: I don't think understands America. Because there have been pacifists in America from the beginning. Uh, the Quakers were pacifists during the Revolutionary War. Um, and Shakers and and uh, and so forth, and the Amish and Mennonites still are uh, some Methodists. So uh, there have been pacifists in 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 America from the very beginning, and so pacifism is not contrary to being American. Um, if you if you understand American culture and, and, and history, uh, not has never been predominant, but there have been and there have been significant Americans who have been pacifists. Uh, probably the best known of the last generation was John Howard Yoder, uh, and uh, during the uh, uh, during the period between World War One and World War II, the leading pacifist by far was Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, he founded uh, organizations, he, he founded uh, publications, and he was the leading uh, voice and thinker uh, for the pacifists. Uh, in America, they thought that after World War II that we, you know, that there was going have a world without war, and uh, but then World War II happened, and he completely rethought how can this happen, particularly coming from Germany, which is you know, supposedly one of the, uh, you know, the smartest, uh, most advanced civilization, you know, uh, society in in modern in the modern world. How could they be leading this uh, this world war, and so uh, he he uh, he completely rethought, and he. He converted to just war.
0: Yeah, so if um, it, it's been said that uh, World War I uh, was almost a death blow to, to post-millennial optimism and that World War II was almost a death blow to pacifism. Let's talk about World War II just for a moment. Um, let, let me just
1: mention a yeah. couple of other names. Yeah. So Stanley Hauerwas from Duke University, uh, the major um, pacifist today, uh, Richard Hayes. At Duke University, is also a uh, a proponent, and among evangelicals, uh, the one evangelical name who is uh, very, yeah, uh, uh, you know, un- unabashedly uh, pacifist is uh, uh, M. Daniel Carroll
0: uh, Rodas at uh, Denver okay. Seminary. Alright. Well, um, we've talked about pacifism. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about crusade, and now I'm thinking particularly about uh, World War II. Uh, so, did America engage in a crusade approach in mentality during World War II? I'm I'm thinking specifically about um, the Allied bombing of civilians, as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, the firebombing of Tokyo, and and the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima. Let me. You know, I started this this uh, podcast with, with uh, a reference to The Fog of War, the documentary. Let me give you a quote, an excerpt from the transcript. And with this here's uh, Robert McNamara speaking uh, about uh, World War II. And here's what he said. I don't fault Truman for dropping the nuclear bomb. The U.S.-Japanese War was one of the most brutal wars in all of human history. Kamikaze pilots, suicide, unbelievable. What one can criticize is that the human race prior to that time and today has not really grappled with what are what I'll call the rules of war. Was there a rule then that said you shouldn't bomb, shouldn't kill, shouldn't burn to death 100,000 civilians in a night? Curtis LeMay said to me that if we'd lost the war, we'd all have been prosecuted as war criminals. And I think he's right. He, and I'd say I, were behaving as war criminals. Now, Dr. Heinbach, this is a remarkable quote, and, and I'd like to get your thoughts on several of his claims. First, his claim that the human race had not really grappled with the rules of war. He doesn't seem to be familiar with St. Augustine, does he? Well, that is a statement of ignorance and just shows
1: he's identifying himself as a human race. So it's a rather arrogant statement uh, because he doesn't know about it. He thinks the human race hasn't dealt with it. Um, so uh, the human race, or at least uh, major thinkers through history, have thought very, very deeply about this and are continuing to. So, uh, And there's a lot to draw from. Uh, he just He just did not know what it was, and he assumed it didn't exist because he didn't know
0: it as if he knew everything that was possible to know. Well, then the second thing that he that he says, that he says, well, you know, he and LeMay, they were the two that uh, gave the go-ahead on the firebombing of Tokyo. And let's remember, you know, what, what were they doing? Um, why did they bomb Tokyo the way they did? Well, Tokyo was a city at this time built uh, with wood and paper houses, and so they used incendiary bombs, fire bombs that were designed to wreak as much havoc and take as much human life in one night as possible. And a lot of people don't realize that Hiroshima was not the worst bombing that happened in Japan. Uh, you know, J- Hiroshima had sixty thousand die. Uh, Tokyo in one night had a hundred thousand die. Uh, in a terrible, uh, in a terrible. Uh, uh, fireball. Um, he says that uh, the Allied Command operated as war criminals. What do you think? Did he just confess to a terrible crime? Uh, absolutely.
1: He did. Um, you have put a lot of things on the table for me to peck at. That's what these so podcasts are for. I'm going to take for. them one at a time. Go first, for it. The, the first thing you put on the table is has America engaged in crusade? And uh, particularly thinking of World War II, every actual war in history is messy. And when you think about it ethically and analyze it ethically, uh, there's going to be uh, good and bad, uh, you know, decisions and uh, and behaviors and so forth. And there are a lot of people, and some of them are behaving in a way that's inconsistent with others. Uh, some of them are following the rules and some of them aren't. So in a real world war, there are, it, it's, uh, it's hard to be general. By and large, America was fighting on just war terms. Um, but there were actions taken, particularly at the end, particularly this action, the firebombing of of Tokyo, which clearly crossed the Rhine into crusade. They weren't thinking crusade, but they didn't know the distinctions well enough to know that they were crossing into it. Um, this General Curtis Lemay, Air Force General, uh, mentioned in your in, in the interview. Uh, he took a, a, a point of view which is uh, basically described as cynical realism. It's it's not pacifism. It's not crusade. And it's not just war. It's uh, it's basically if you. Uh, uh, in a war, you do what you have to do to win and, uh, and don't worry about the rules. Um, so the uh, in other words, don't worry about the ethics, uh, Just do what you have to do to fight to win the war and worry let the ethics ethics ethicist uh, discuss it later. Um, that's a horribly irresponsible. Now, it would have been great if they had had somebody, uh, trained in, in the ethics of war and peace to, to at least uh, give them some feedback on what they were trying to do. But uh, the firebombing of, of uh, the challenge, obviously, uh, Japan through World War II was fighting on a crusade footing. Uh, the the, the uh, value decisions that were made, you know, kamikaze pilots and so forth dying for the cause like that, uh, comes from a crusade mentality, cr- crusade perspective of war. So, and it's very, very difficult when the other side is fighting crusade for you
0: not to respond. Yeah, they, uh, the the surprise attack at Pearl Harbor kind of set the tone, yeah. and then we have um, the the landings at places like Iwo Jima uh, and other places in which it was. Fought to the death, where they didn't, they didn't, they didn't surrender. They would, many of them would commit suicide uh, rather than surrender, um, as you said. And there was also the kamikaze pilots. It was easy. It's it's easy to understand how the American forces well, started thinking in a crusade mindset. Also, then you,
1: because your enemy is fighting crusade, does not give you permission to use, but it's very tempting. Uh, you know the uh, you can overcome it with better technology, better planning, better discipline, uh, and so forth. But it uh, it's te- well you do this to us, we're going to do the same back to you. Da 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 da. Uh, so it's very tempting to respond, and th- and that's what I think uh, Curtis Lemay and McNamara uh, succumbed to. That um, it is uh, in fact. He- He's just plain ignorant. Was there a rule that said we shouldn't bomb? Yes, there was. He obviously didn't know what it was. Um, but uh, you don't, you distinguish between combatants and non combatants, you distinguish between military and non military targets. And the whole strategy of the firebombing of Tokyo was to bomb and kill and destroy civilians in their homes not military targets not tanks not factories not munitions not uh, not troops but civilians in their homes to show them that they couldn't protect their civilian population anymore so that the uh they would uh, the people would turn against the rulers of japan and insist that they surrender that they stop fighting that was that was the logic of LeMay. but so it was intentional targeting of non-military
0: targets, and that is, that is crusade, but that is not allowed in just war. Fast forward 45 years, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait and uh, the Bush 41 administration is left with a very difficult uh, decision to make concerning uh, this obvious act of aggression. This time you are part of uh, the Bush forty-one administration. Tell us how what was your role with them? How did you how did you come to be involved uh, in the White House?
1: Well, I graduated from seminary and uh, with the idea of trying to be a moral influence in in uh, political Washington, but uh, I wanted to be more credentialed, so I. Uh, Uh, After my seminary training, I uh, did a Ph.D. in law, politics, and Christian ethics, particularly to think through and also to be able to defend my right to be a a moral voice in a secular arena. So uh, that was what I trained for out of a sense of uh, calling, and and so I was in D.C., I was in the Senate staff for a while, and then I was in the White House staff, but... uh, I was in domestic policy. I was uh, uh, on the the uh, domestic policy council staff, uh, working on initiatives that had to do with domestic affairs. And uh, but my but I had I had all this training and experience in the ethics of war and peace uh, as the uh, tensions built up in the Persian Gulf. And so uh, there were I was discussing this uh, internally on the staff. Uh, because they were, uh, people were asking questions, you know, know, uh, why are they asking, you know, people are asking in the media, you know, uh, the president hasn't given any reasons for us to be uh, over there, for sending troops over there, putting people in harm's way. And the White House staff was saying, he's, he's giving reasons and talking points every day in speeches, he's giving reasons. And they keep saying he hasn't given reasons. So, you know, how inconsistent can they be? And, and I was overhearing that. I said, what they're saying is the president hasn't given moral justification. They shouldn't just know how to ask it. And uh, it would be a really good idea if somebody could just list just war principles for the president, help them articulate what he's doing. So you said somebody ought to do that. And they said, well, do you know anybody? I said, well, I'd be glad to. So I wasn't at a level where I could just on my own initiate that. But uh, that was suggested to the, the uh, chief of staff, and he he authorized it. And so I wrote a memo directly to the president, uh, listing just war principles briefly as they applied in the situation. And uh, and he liked it so much, he turned around and he wanted he sent it to the speechwriters. Wanted to make a national address on his on the male moral justification of his leadership. And so uh, I called the speechwriters and it uh, went to. Uh, uh, one speech writer who I asked him, well, how are you doing? He says, what is this just war stuff? I said, well, it's been around for a while. So uh, I said, well, why don't you uh, he had my memo, I had the principles and so he wrote it, he, he sort of did a draft and then I went over it to make sure he didn't say anything wrong. And uh, that was the national address that Bush gave. Uh, where was that, the context? Where, where did he Well, it get was uh, it was at the, it was in January and it was in the uh, it was the National Indigenous Broadcasters' Uh, convention, but it was a national address on the moral framework of his leadership in the Persian Gulf, and all of the uh, major news networks, particularly the the, the news magazines, uh, which were a bigger deal in those days than they are now, um, had had uh, front page articles about him uh, uh, resurrecting. What you know, because just war had been thought. Nobody was discussing just war when I went to the academy or uh, or even in seminary uh, or, or, or PhD work it was it was a historic thing and people thought it was no longer relevant after the uh, advent of nuclear weapons and uh, and so Bush's use on my recommendation of just war language uh, resurrected the application of this war in the modern world so so then what was the cultural impact? I mean- well, the impact was suddenly. Nobody had any ground to criticize the president for his moral leadership. They could disagree with it, but they but they couldn't say that he hadn't hadn't given moral justification. And uh, and so, and he and he followed through in how uh, you know that was the justification would be ad bellum, but the uh, but uh, he had followed through in the in bello principles during the war in, in the way that he he uh, led the uh, the use of force. And the uh, decision not to uh, continue on to Baghdad once the uh, the uh, Saddam Hussein's troops were in retreat, uh, because the goal was only to free free Kuwait, only to deny his unjust claim of uh, of uh, territory outside his regime. It uh, it, it wasn't. Uh, if we'd gone to Baghdad, it would have uh, changed the Justification of the war
0: to something different than had brought the coalition together. So, how did the popular media uh, respond? Did they pick up on the notion of just war?
1: They did. They did pretty well. Uh, they, you know, they, uh, the, you know, there was a, you know, uh, enormous uh, support for the president, for the military. Uh, by the American people, by the Congress and by the media uh it's hard to believe nowadays, but that was you know during you know for that for that, and it was a short war uh got in and out and so forth rather quickly um the uh there was some criticism at the very end in terms of the bombing of the retreating uh the retreating forces uh they were leaving Kuwait City you know as to whether uh they had uh Bombed too much, whether they had uh, had, had stopped in time, uh, and so forth. But um, and it would be wrong if uh, the intention was to destroy uh, destroy troops in retreat when you didn't have to. They're already retreating. Um, but the difference between the carnage on the desert uh, floor in the morning and and not was only a matter of a few minutes deciding when to stop the bombing. And it was hard to tell in the middle of the night whether these, these folks are actually uh, retreating or are they uh, repositioning. Uh, and you couldn't, uh, you know, it, it's hard to, it, t- it takes a few minutes to tell the difference between.
0: So that was in the early 1990s, uh, and the documentary came out in the early 2000s. And um, it's interesting that uh, from his interviews with McNamara, Uh, Errol Morris derives 11 principles that sound an awful lot like some of the things that you've been saying. Uh, He said that um, uh, number one and two of the principles were empathize with your enemy, rationality will not save us, Our number six, get the data, number seven, belief and seeing sometimes are both often wrong, Uh, Number eight, be prepared to re-examine your reasoning. But I couldn't help, as I went through the 11, to notice number five. Proportionality should be a guide in war. Um, It does appear that late in life, McNamara came to appreciate uh, some of the principles of a just war. Uh, It is a couple of footnotes. One, he was opposed to the second Gulf War uh, of... uh, of of the Bush 43 administration and that's would be a topic for an, another podcast and one one other interesting footnote that I'll mention as we close uh this podcast is that McNamara Robert McNamara was also the one who introduced the wearing of seat belts and automobiles um so there have been a lot of discussions about McNamara. How many lives did he cost and how many lives did he save? Uh, very interesting conversation. Dr. Heimbach, this has been a delight to, uh, to get to hear uh, from you uh, about what are, uh, what is just war and what are its principles. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This is the Christ in Culture podcast. I'm Ken Keithley. Have a great day uh, and we'll talk to you later.